Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Western history has led us to the most prosperous age in the history of humanity, and yet more and more our kids are taught to be ashamed of their country. Are you tired of Common Core, Howard Zinn-influenced, revisionist history in our schools? Do you want your family to have fun learning about history that you can trust? Do you want your kids to learn to love history? Then drivethroughhistory.com is for you. The guys over at drivethroughhistory.com have created a world of entertaining, on-location, video-based courses for your kids. They've got ancient history, American history, biblical history, and world history. Perfect for all of you who find yourself homeschooling for the first time. It's fun, and your kids are going to love it. To learn more, head over to drivethruhistory.com forward slash Zuby, Z-U-B-Y, where they've got streamed courses and old school DVDs, and you can use the code Zuby, Z-U-B-Y, at checkout for 20% off any order. That's drivethruhistory.com forward slash Zuby. Go check it out. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gon' remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Today I'm very excited to welcome a very special guest. He is a visiting fellow at Princeton. He is a biologist. He's also a very well-known public intellectual and the host, of course, of the Dark Horse podcast. And this is Brett Weinstein. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I've given a brief intro right there, but for people who may not be familiar with who you are, can you please introduce yourself to the people, Brett? Sure. I'm not quite sure what to say. Many people will probably be familiar with me from the um, spectacular events at the Evergreen State College in May of 2017, when I was confronted at first by 50 students that I had never met who claimed I was a racist and demanded my, uh, my removal from the college. Um, those protests quickly devolved into riots, and um, it was in many ways a preview of what would overtake the U.S. three years later. 
Um, people may also know of some of my evolutionary work. I have uh, interacted with Richard Dawkins, for example, over a number of deep questions about evolution and the way it interacts with human beings. And as you mentioned, as host of the Dark Horse podcast, people may have seen me since COVID began. My wife and I have been having biweekly live conversations that have caught on. And I guess the last thing to say is that I launched the Unity Movement, which has been advancing a proposal, the Unity 2020 proposal to recapture the White House on behalf of the American public. And so some people who had not been aware of me before have become aware of me in that context. Okay, awesome. Well, there's there's a lot there. So we were just chatting um, before we jumped on the podcast and started recording. And I said, you know what, maybe we should save this for the podcast itself. But you're out there in Portland. Um, from what I can see from a distance, at least based on Twitter videos, it looks like Portland is quite literally on fire. Um, on the streets, in the forests, it seems like people are, it just looks like chaos over there. So what is what is actually going on in Portland, but also in quite a few cities across America right now? What is the What's the actual situation like? Well, people should not despair. Things are not as bad in Portland as you think, because <laughs> we actually have a spare Portland. We've got one in Maine, and we've got one in Oregon. <laughs> the one in Oregon's in big trouble. Um, that's where I live. And, mm -hmm. uh, you yeah, know, as you point out, we have a... Um, an ongoing pattern of civil unrest over the course of more than 100 consecutive days uh, where protests develop every day and devolve into riots almost every night. And the civil authority, our mayor, who also happens to be our police commissioner, has hogtied the police and prevented them from interceding even when they have come to the mayor's building and lit a fire, amazing as that sounds, lit a fire in the lobby of his building with actual people living above. Wow. Um, so we have a, a, a very dire situation. Our governor has also refused to intercede. The federal government has interceded and been repelled by the rioters and by our local authorities who have played politics with the question of federal intervention. So, so we have that. Oh, go ahead. Okay, no, I was going to say so why why are people why are people rioting? What do they want? And then second second to that, why are the authorities letting it happen? What's going on there? We have a perfect storm effectively. We've got an ongoing protest movement that has existed in the Pacific Northwest since the WTO protests, and it has a strong anarchist component. Mm. And we saw this throughout the Occupy period, where a very strong thread of anarchism effectively took over the Occupy movement. And now, in the George Floyd protest era, we see that same anarchist contingent grabbing the banner of Black Lives Matter and advancing it for their own anarchist purposes. So in essence, what I think people fail to understand is that one part of this is a very long, simmering anarchist attack on the structure of civilization, and it has been invigorated by partnering with another movement that has erupted, Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter. 
And in some sense, the reason that the civil authorities do not intercede is that this movement is wrongly understood to be, in some sense, liberal. And because it is liberal and because the city and state are both very liberal, there is a desire um, not to be seen as quelling legitimate protest. But of course, this mm -hmm. isn't legitimate protest. Mm -hmm. It uh, When this anarchist movement speaks about what it wants, what it, what it wants is absolutely preposterous. And were it to get its wishes, it would be destructive of, uh, of everything the West stands for. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, the politics of the matter make it difficult, I suppose, for the, the mayor and the governor to do the right thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a weird one. I mean, I haven't been to Portland before. I haven't been to Seattle. When I was in the U.S. last year, I went to California for the first time. Um, I went to Los Angeles. I went to San Francisco. This is prior to a lot of the madness that's going on now. But one thing that I found very strange in those two cities in particular was some of the, some of the policies, right? Because I was seeing certain issues, particularly homelessness, um, drug use on on crazy levels, and you know the police kind of not doing anything about it. And I was speaking to people about this, including police officers, including Uber drivers, people in general. And it was, there was this strange thing of everyone sort of acknowledging these issues and these problems. And then perhaps in some cases, even telling me about very permissive policies and the police having their hands tied, etc. And, but a lot of people didn't seem to sort of draw the connection between the problem they're complaining about and the policies that are incentivizing it. And it looks like that's, it looks like Portland is a place where that is also happening and it seems to be reaching a fever pitch right now. So as someone who I consider like a, like a true, a true liberal, <laughs> you know, not a, not, a, not this, I don't, I don't even know what to call what, what's going on now, but what are your, what are your thoughts on why, why that is the case? Why, why can't people, draw a line or be willing to sort of stand up and uphold the things that they really are claiming to support and uphold, but they're not really supporting it, maybe out of fear of being called conservative or whatever it is. But what, what's going on there? What's the psychology behind it? Well, we have a kind of slow motion disaster that has unfolded in the US, and both the left and the right have played a role. So the left in the U.S. has, true to form, been overly enthusiastic about solution making. And on the one hand, we can applaud the left for attempting to build a better world. That's a laudable objective and one I, I share even with the mainstream. But the problem is that trying to build a better world inevitably invites unintended consequences. Mm. And the left is... Um, is always deaf to the unintended consequences of its well-intended policies. And so mm. there has been a bit of overreach on the part of the American left in an attempt to fix things and a failure to acknowledge what hasn't worked. There is a, a dogmatic tendency to, to just stick by your guns rather than learn from your mistakes. Mm. And the right, true to form, has reacted to this with an overly aggressive um, dismantling program where it has taken apart the solutions and rather than replace them, it has 
promoted a false story that things are better than they are. And what this has done is it has left us with a country in which a huge number of people are falling off the bottom of an economic ladder and there is no safety net to catch them. So, you know, what you saw with homelessness on American streets is in every major city and it's something that requires a recognition that that these people are our responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead of that, what we have is inflated police budgets designed to take care of that which is not accounted for elsewhere in our system. In other words, the police are basically functioning as um, quasi-social workers dealing with a mental health crisis amongst homeless people Mm -hmm. for which they are not trained and for which they are the wrong remedy. And so anyway it's a it's a disaster that really requires a broad uh, a broad scale rethinking of the way we deal with our economic structure with those who find that they are unable to compete and um, basically uh, how we are going to navigate our responsibility to each other mm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated one. I mean, one thing that I find really bizarre, I mean, I feel this way in the UK to some degree, but also with the US is it's very weird because these are two of the most prosperous countries in the world, in history, etc., right? If you if you're simply born or live in the UK or the USA, compared to a lot of people in the world, compared to the majority of people, you are even if you're not at the top of the ladder within those societies, you're actually very privileged in many ways, shapes, and forms compared to most people who live on this earth and everyone who's walked it prior to us. But at the same time, it's weird how as as things are better than they've ever been by very many measures, we also collectively are feeling that in many ways, you know, economically, culturally, socially, even in terms of morality, etc., in some ways, it feels like things are getting worse, or some people are even saying that they're worse than they've ever been. Um, and and I'm, I'm quite intrigued by this juxtaposition, because I, I feel it myself sometimes too, right? Sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what's going on? Like, the world is going crazy. Things are so mad. But then also, I'm kind of like, we also live in this amazing time where we can sit here, um, you know, thousands of miles away from each other and be recording a podcast, which we can then put out to thousands of people and, you know, um, far less people are than before are dying of disease or dying in war. Um, even people who, you know, the, the poor people are obese, right? Obesity is a bigger problem than starvation, etc. So it's weird having this sort of juxtaposition where there's, um, there are still clearly problems and there's, there are major problems too, but also, there's that perspective of like actually things are still things are still amazing and they're still getting better by very many measures i don't know what your what your thoughts are on that sort of general idea well it is the best of times mm. it is not the worst of times but it is also the most dangerous of times okay. and so what we do have is in absolute terms we are far better off than our ancestors were. There's Mm -hmm. no question about this. 
um, for in, in many different ways, some of which are hard to measure. The yeah. fact that you have a device in your pocket that can uh, access something that far outstrips the, you know, the great library of Alexandria in terms of the level of information that it puts in your hands is something that it doesn't matter how wealthy you were in 1960, you didn't have anything like that access. So yeah. we are in absolute terms, in many ways, just simply best off of mm -hmm. any generation. On the other hand, the well-being is very unevenly distributed. Mm -hmm. And we get tangled around this issue a lot. For one thing, we have post-traumatic stress disorder in the U.S. and I guess in Britain too about communism. And so uh, we have this perennial fight about the distribution of wealth. And anybody who argues that the distribution of wealth is counterproductive risks being dismissed as advocating an even distribution of wealth. And what I would say is actually some um, some skew in the distribution of wealth is part of the engine that fuels our collective well-being. That is to say, it's just simply part of the incentive structure that causes people to strive and to generate things that place all of us at advantage. Mm -hmm. But there's diminishing returns on that process. And the level of skew that we have in the distribution of wealth is counterproductive. And it leaves a lot of people um, unfortunately predisposed to see us as very poor, right? Because the human mind is constructed by evolution mm -hmm. to take relative well-being much more seriously than it takes absolute well-being. In other words, we are wired to register inequality. And there's a good reason for that. You know, if, if you imagine a scenario in the ancestral past, if you were, let's say, uh, an early farmer, let's say it's 8,000 years ago and you're farming a piece of land and you look over the border to your neighbor's piece of land and your neighbor is far exceeding your capacity at harvest, mm -hmm. but they're on a similar patch of territory, that's a strong indication that you aren't doing something well. Maybe they've discovered some method that increases their yield, like crop rotation. Maybe they've got some sort of a device that helps them leverage their, uh, their efforts, so they might have a wheel. Mm -hmm. But in any case, you should be focused on the fact that they're out-competing you because you might learn what it is that they know that you don't and employ it yourself to good effect. Mm -hmm. So that makes us very sensitive to others doing better than we are. And unfortunately, we all have these devices in our lives that allow us to peer into the lives of other people who are not our neighbors. And so the fact that they may be doing better than we are mm -hmm. has no implication whatsoever for whether or not we are missing some opportunity. But nonetheless, our evolutionary programming causes us to take this um, as an evidence that something is wrong. And many people have focused on the idea that what is wrong is an unfairness in the system, which mm -hmm. often it is, but not always. Mm -hmm. So um, what I would point to, though, is although we can fight about whether or not an uneven distribution of wealth is uh, something that should be tolerated, and I would argue some 
some inequality in the distribution of wealth is desirable. Mm -hmm. But we can also argue about what level is tolerable. What we can't argue about is whether a concentration in the distribution of opportunity is a good thing. And this mm -hmm. is where I think these protest movements um, have resonated so broadly, is that there is a sense in the U.S. and uh, farther afield that opportunity is not available to many people and that the distribution of opportunity is strongly predicted by things like race. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, undeniably true in the U.S. And the problem is people are drawing the wrong lesson from it. They are imagining that because opportunity is unevenly distributed, mm -hmm. which is, I would argue, inherently bad, because it is unevenly distributed and because it is unevenly distributed by race, it must be racism that is causing that inequality. Mm -hmm. And um, it is that misunderstanding that I believe is fueling uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and causing increasing chaos in the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because, I mean, like, this is one of those things where, like, I often say, like, I don't, <laughs> this may sound weird to some people, but, like, I don't care about wealth inequality. I care about poverty, but wealth inequality itself, like, if like, there are people who earn 10,000 times as much money as me or who have 10,000 times as much wealth as me. And that's fine. I don't care. If they obtained it by legal methods, then that's okay. I'm I'm concerned about poverty. I'm concerned about people not having enough at an absolute level. Or as you said, when it comes to opportunity, if people are being unfairly discriminated against, or if they don't have access to certain opportunities, etc. I agree that that's a, a major problem. But my personal take, and I've, I've felt like this, I kind of felt like this since I was a child, is I've always felt like there's, I've never totally understood the focus on, the focus on gaps. I feel like as a society, we focus on gaps and inequalities too much rather than looking at things on an individual level. And I think that when you focus on gaps and you focus on always comparing yourselves to other people on an individual level or even on a group level, I just think that's a recipe for permanent misery and resentment and coveting and jealousy, etc. Um, I mean, I think I think a lot of stuff, as you sort of alluded to, I think a lot of stuff is being driven by people's emotions. And I would perhaps argue like a bit of a paucity of morality um, and people not sort of valuing the right things. But I feel like that's um, it's sort of a never ending game because, you know, nature is very unequal in, in so many ways, right? We're all totally different. Um, and people are in different places. People do have different opportunities. People come from different backgrounds, have different capabilities. Some people work a lot harder than other people, etc. So, but I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like we focus too much on, on the gaps. And for example, when you get um, a lot of left-wing politicians or activists, right, they'll just make a statement, just, you know, the top, I don't know, the top 5% of people in America own as much wealth as the, I don't know, the bottom 60% or something like that. I don't know what the numbers are. And that in itself is their point. Like I hear that and I'm like, yeah, so what? So maybe, I mean, maybe there's something I'm, I'm greatly missing here as to why that's a gigantic issue past an emotional level. Um, but to me, it's, it's not. Um, I, I like your idea of talking about the opportunity distribution. I think that's a more interesting concept. But um, is there something that I'm missing here when it comes to the 
income or wealth distribution or are people focusing on the wrong thing? I think they're focusing on the wrong thing, but I also think that there's something that you're missing that is okay. worth taking into consideration. Please, please Which let me is, know. if you imagine that the reason that an unequal distribution of wealth is something that should not upset us is mm -hmm. that it is the ability to earn more wealth that incentivizes people to solve problems that we want solved, mm -hmm. right? To deliver us uh, art, to deliver us insight, to... Um, to act in ways that extend our compassion, right? If we want those things done, mm -hmm. and it is the ability to earn that causes people to do them, then we have to look at the wealth that has accumulated and say, how much more good could have been done if it was more evenly distributed? In other words, let's look at a, a Jeff Bezos, and let's um, in my opinion, be generous to Jeff Bezos and imagine that he has done an awful lot of good mm -hmm. to make himself wealthy. Would he have done it for a billion dollars? My guess is he would have done everything he had done for a billion dollars if the mm -hmm. entire thing was rescaled. And so if we take all of the residual, and I must admit I don't know how much wealth he has now. But um, about a hundred billion plus, I think. I believe that is the right order of magnitude. So if we were to imagine that uh, $99 billion of his wealth was unnecessary in order mm -hmm. to motivate him to do all of the positive things that he has, has done, mm -hmm. then the question is, okay, what could you do with $99 billion worth of incentive pointed at people who don't have an opportunity to advance the ball for us collectively? And the answer is quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So it is not that we should be troubled by how well Jeff Bezos lives. Who mm -hmm. cares, as you point out? What mm -hmm. we should be troubled by is that we are not getting a good return on our investment with respect to the incentive to strive. If people had better access to the things that make you capable of innovating, mm -hmm. and they had access to the incentives which have concentrated in a small number of hands, but mm -hmm. could be offered to a larger number of people, then civilization would be better because a lot more innovations that we might have would actually come into existence. Yeah. I mean, I don't fundamentally disagree with that, but ultimately that's his money, right? That's his rightly earned money. And that 99 billion, I don't believe anyone has any right whatsoever to take or confiscate that from him. If he, if you, if he charitably chooses to you know, be a philanthropist and give away $99 billion, all power to him. But I've never understood the mentality that somehow people feel that they are entitled to that. I've, I don't understand that. Well, I mean, I think it's more complex than that. I'm not okay. excited about recapturing the, the wealth that rich people have and redistributing. I don't mm. think it's the right place to focus. Okay. I'm interested in fixing the system so that to the extent that wealth accumulates in a counterproductive or suboptimal way that it stops happening. Mm. But, um, but let's look at, at Bezos since we're on this topic. Yeah, sure. I'm curious. One thing that Bezos has done with Amazon is he has run a very aggressive business that drives out its competitors, not by being superior, but by being so well-resourced that it is going to outlive them while losing money. Mm -hmm. And this is actually, or at least was, um, illegal in a world where we enforced 
um, antitrust provisions. You're not allowed to drive out your competitors by selling at a loss in order that once they're gone, you can jack up prices later, mm -hmm. right? That is a, that's gaming of the system. That's rent-seeking. And so to the extent that what Amazon has done is has provided effectively a huge bargain for customers that is not itself economically sustainable, and it has done this in the interest of driving out every competitor and becoming a monopoly in the future that uh, is destructive of the system that allows people to earn and that causes them to innovate. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't want that to occur. And frankly, we should reinstate the provisions that enforce um, the antitrust laws so that this behavior is unprofitable. In other words, we should force Jeff Bezos to compete on a level playing field in which we all understand the rules and in which, uh, you know, others have a shot. Mm. We don't want to provide advantages to Goliath. Frankly, we'd like to provide advantages to David. And yeah. um, so when you say it's his money, why do people have designs on it? In part, it's his money because he's played hardball and violated the spirit of capitalism in order to gain all of that wealth. Mm. And uh, I can't blame him for doing it to the extent that it was apparently within the rules. You know, he played hardball, but yeah. we should change the rules. I got you. I get it. That makes sense. Can you talk a little bit more about your um, your project? Is it Unity 2020? Unity 2020? Right. Yeah. Tell us a little yep. bit more about that because I'm, I'm curious to learn more about it. I think it's a really unique idea that I haven't seen someone propose before. Sure. So in the U.S., we have a problem, which is that the structure of our electoral system creates two large parties that cannot be displaced. And what we call the duopoly, the Democrats and Republicans, drives out all competitors. And these parties have become deeply corrupt. They've become effectively influence peddling operations. And that prevents us from achieving good governance because effectively these things serve the interests of wealthy donors and they pretend to serve the interests of the electorate. And anyway, it's some kind of theater that goes on uh, decade after decade. Mm. The problem is that the obvious answer is to vote in something that isn't corrupt, something mm. from outside the duopoly. But every time one suggests such a thing, they face the same argument. And the argument is... If you set up some alternative to the Democrats or the Republicans, then it will take support away from whichever of those parties is closer to your values and mm -hmm. thereby empower the one that's farther away from your values. So you will elect the greater evil from your perspective. Mm -hmm. So you mustn't do it. And if somehow you withstand the barrage of attacks that you're going to elect the greater evil by spoiling the election... Um, then you will be told, well, maybe we have to consider such a thing, but you can't do it this election because the Supreme Court is against is again on the line. Mm. And if you do it in this election, then you will screw the U.S. up for the next 20 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. So this is just Groundhog Day from our perspective, right? If you think outside of the duopoly structure, you always meet these arguments election after election. So Unity 2020 is a structural plan to beat that argument. And basically, the idea is we draft two candidates, one from the left 
and one from the right. We draft them under the agreement that they will govern as a team by consensus. Mm -hmm. The person who will inhabit the top of the ticket will be chosen by a coin flip. And then after serving four years, their positions will reverse. And the person who had been president will take the role of vice president and vice versa. And this can go on until one party has inhabited the office of president twice, at which point they would be replaced on the ticket by another suitable representative. Mm -hmm. So this proposal neutralizes the argument that anything outside of the duopoly will push the system towards the greater evil because it straddles the line. It is not centrist. In fact, it is completely uh, without ideology. Mm -hmm. um, but what it does is it brings left and right together to meet in the middle to discuss the business of the nation, which is what our government is supposed to be doing anyway. Yeah. And this confounds the, the lesser evil paradox. Um, so anyway, we have been on this project for some time. We have had nominations for candidates to draft. We have voted on those nominations. We identified six people who were at the top of our nomination group, and we held a ranked choice vote, ranked choice voting being a mechanism that empowers uh, smaller voices within governance. It uh, marshals against the duopoly, mm -hmm. and our ranked choice vote produced a potential ticket to draft that is Tulsi Gabbard from mm -hmm. the Democratic Party and Dan Crenshaw from the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. It turns out that they, in addition to both being, so uh, Dan was in the Special Forces, um, Tulsi is an active reservist, um, they are friends, mm -hmm. um, so they work well together, they actually like each other, and there's no question about partisan bickering between them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in any case, I think it's a stunning success that we were able to identify such a high-quality ticket that seems so well-suited to um, to meeting in the middle to govern. Yeah, and they're both they're both relatively young as well, which I think is also a big big factor. So important, especially yeah. in this absurd election where we've got two septuagenarians <laughs> competing for. Uh, for the White House. Yeah, it's so weird watching that. I mean, I'm sure it's weird as an American, but as, as an outsider, it's so odd just to watch like these two guys in their 70s who are really sort of throwing playground insults. <laughs> they're, they're really sort of acting like acting like children in a way. And it's just, um, it, it's funny, you know, I mean, I, I'll be honest, like I find, um, I find Trump's Twitter, etc., hilarious i know that i know and i can totally understand why some people don't like it but as someone who doesn't take politics like hardcore seriously i think it's kind of funny that the most powerful man in the world is a twitter troll i i sort of have a respect for that um but it is odd when i'm just looking at it i'm like man these these are like grandfathers and i'm just seeing the stuff that they're flinging at each other and then uh, like you mentioned you know dan i've had dan crenshaw on my podcast i'd love to get uh tulsi gabbard on it in the, in the future but I'm looking at that, you know, people like that, and I'm like, man, like <laughs> they're they're coming across a lot more mature and um, more willing to kind of deal with the other side or address Americans as a whole. I mean, I think a big problem to begin with is even the fact that people view stuff as as sides. You know, I know that pol that's just how politics is. It's like that in every country. It's you know split into sides. It's split into teams, but. 
I think that doesn't really represent the population so well because the mo the majority of people in any country are not explicitly right wing or explicitly left wing. I mean, most most people don't even vote, and those who do tend to be sort of floating voters. They're not you know hardcore down the line Republicans or conservatives or Democrats or labor voters or whatever it is. But when you look at it in the media. When you look at it um, on social media, when you look at it in the way people and pundits are talking about it, it's this real sort of hard binary split, um, which just it just doesn't represent reality very well. No, it doesn't represent it at all. And in fact, uh, there's a piece of research I'm very fond of that emerged um, in the last couple of years uh, called the Hidden Tribes Report. Mm. And the Hidden Tribes Report it validated a suspicion that I have long had, which is that the vast majority of Americans are not extreme in any way and actually agree on most of the central issues and values that are important to governance and that we've effectively been divided into two camps that can barely stand each other mm. um, by parties that are serving their own interests in our division. So... You know, in, in the Unity 2020 context, when I advanced this, this proposal, I said there were three characteristics that um, were required to be um, eligible to be drafted by Unity 2020. You had to be capable, you had to be courageous, and you had to be a patriot. And mm -hmm. the thought was that anybody who had those characteristics would actually find the vast agreement of what the Hidden Tribes Report calls the exhausted majority and would end up serving those interests, which it's been so long since our parties actually catered to the American public that we've forgotten what it even feels like. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, because I, I think one, again, as an outsider, I think one big advantage that, like, I think each side has its advantages, right? And I think that one big advantage that the right or Republicans have in my eyes is they seem to like America a lot more, right? They seem way more patriotic. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case across the board. Like I'm, <laughs> I know on a, on a literal level, I know most majority of Democratic voters will also love America and be patriotic. But in terms of the way it appears, the, the branding, shall we say, it looks like, like I think one of the most powerful things that really appeals to Trump, whether or not people like him or dislike him is it's clear to me that he loves America. Like he's, he's patriotic. He, he loves the USA. And when you're looking at the modern left or some aspects of it, there's a lot of anti-American, anti-patriotic stuff going on, which I think turns, I think there's a lot that turns people off, but I think that that turns people off because most people are like, okay, you know, America, the USA has its flaws. But I believe that most Americans are still very proud to be from the USA. Um, but it seems like it's it's become quite trendy in certain circles to be anti-American. Um, and I'm not sure where that's coming from. Yes, I I see some of that, but I would push back a little bit. Okay, go ahead. What shows up on the right to me looks like nationalism and not patriotism. Okay. And I do see a lot of unpatriotic stuff on the left. It's mm. typically the far left that behaves this way. Sure. All of it is 
I think, quite deaf to the central characteristic of patriotism, okay. which seems to me a willingness to sacrifice for one's country. Mm-hmm. So nationalism does not have this character. Nationalism uh, may be very proud of one's country, but it utilizes its country to get ahead. Mm. And I think that this distinction is captured very well in um, the famous quote from John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He's talking about the difference between nationalism and patriotism. And I think patriotism is surprisingly rare. Okay. Now, I don't think it has to be. I think Americans in general have that instinct, but so much of what we now here is either sanitized Mm -hmm. so that it is as if America is without fault. And frankly, you will hear this in the president's rhetoric all the time. If Mm -hmm. we're doing it, then we're doing it better than anyone else, Mm -hmm. right? We're like incapable of failure or something. Um, And on the left, um, there is this uh, focus on historical wrongs, which are, of course, very real. Um, but I would advocate that people take a view of their country, that Americans look at the United States and see it as one sees a family member struggling mm-hmm. to be good, mm-hmm. right? If this is a, your child, you can simultaneously love your child, to, you can sacrifice for your child, and you can recognize that your child has screwed up. You mm-hmm. may be angry at your child at the same moment, but... Um, you know, for anyone who has children, you know that it is not that when you are angry at your child, you don't love them. It's sure. just simply not that way, yeah. right? In fact, your anger at them may be invigorated by the fact that you do love them, and you're angry at them for going down some road that is going to harm them long term, and really it is their future well-being that is causing you to scold them in the present. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I'm I'm frustrated that so many on the left seem to see the failures of the U.S. as evidence of our badness, because that's not in any way correct. This was a spectacular prototype of the correct system. And there is a reason that the American experiment has caught on and uh, effectively created the modern West. Mm. And that is because we are aspiring to the right things. And it is time that we stopped being ashamed of those things. And we got back to the job of finishing the project rather than focusing on what it did historically that was um, against our values, right? The point is, okay, that was against our values Mm -hmm. from the very inception of the country, but it's fixable. And we are far more likely to fix this beautiful prototype than we are to invent something better by destroying it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've said, I think the key word for me, if I could define 2020, and maybe even the last few years in a single word, to me, it's overcorrection. I just feel like we're going through a huge overcorrection on a lot of different levels. I just think overreaction and overcorrection. And I agree that, look, with every single country, if you want, if you want to find flaws in an individual or in a nation or in the world, we, we, can, we can do that forever, right? There, there is no country where if you go back in the history, you can't find a lot of some truly awful stuff, right? Um, or even an individual, if, you were, if we were all to judge each other based on the worst things that we've ever done or we've ever said, I don't think we'd really get on with each other. Um, but yeah, it just seems like there's this 
overcorrection, as you said, you know, and it can happen in both directions, right? An idea to want to denial any historical evil or any current problems which may still exist or be pervasive. But then there's also this narrative of, you know what, the entire thing, top to bottom, every structure, every system, every institution needs to be torn down, to ripped, pulled up from the roots and entirely replaced with something else. And it seems like that way of thinking, at least it seems to be gaining steam. I don't think it's really that popular, but it seems to be gaining steam. And a lot of people don't really seem to want to stand up and go, okay, wait, hold up, hold up. That's not, neither of these narratives is is correct. We, we can acknowledge historical sins without dis blowing up the whole system and getting throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as they say, getting rid of everything that has been accomplished and been done and achieved over the past decades and centuries, you know, conserving this, this is the, to me, this is the whole point of, you know, conservatives and, and liberals or like those lines of thinking. It's, you know, conserve, preserve the stuff that is good and slowly tweak and change the stuff that is not so good rather than just demolish the whole thing and try to start again. Um, so how can those sensible reasonable voices in the middle <laughs> um be be brought together and be made louder because i think i think that's the majority of voices but it just seems like they're getting drowned out oh there's no question about this and your point about overreaction is exactly right it's like you know tilling your field with a nuclear weapon or something like <laughs> that right it's 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 mind-boggling what yeah. we are putting in jeopardy so i i will say you know there are a couple of uh, events tied up in space exploration mm. that briefly accomplished the job, right? So there was this thing called the overview effect, which was a philosophical sense that overcame astronauts. You know, astronauts are very hard-headed people, mm -hmm. right? Very practical. They have to be in order to get through the training. Um, you know, they're all very smart, very well-educated, engineering-minded. And on looking back at the Earth, they got something. Mm -hmm. And they came back talking about it, and people heard them. And so anyway, this thing called the overview effect is real. The problem is, somehow, we've all gotten so used to seeing pictures of Earth from far away, and you know there are so many astronauts now that we've lost... We've lost what we glimpsed through their eyes. Um, but if there was some way, I mean, the other one of these is uh, the pale blue dot. You know, Carl Sagan points to this photo from Voyager looking back at the Earth, and the Earth is so tiny hanging in this, this sunbeam. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the pale blue dot being, you know, the home of every person who's ever existed. And I think if there was some way to philosophically just take a time out, right? If you could teleport each person far enough away from the earth to just look at it for a few minutes, you, didn't, you wouldn't have to say anything. Mm. But the point is, once you get back down here and you realize how fragile this thing is mm. and how extraordinary it is that we beat the odds, that we created something this capable frankly, that we are this close to defeating racism, mm. as bad as racism may still be, it's a dim shadow of what it once oh, was, yeah. right? Undeniable. We're this close. 
And so how could we possibly upend this amazingly successful experiment that beat every odd um, in favor of the prospect of something better emerging from the ashes? Yeah. No way. It's not going to happen. We're this close. We can, we can fix what's wrong mm-hmm. if we're willing to be honest about it. But if we're going to be dishonest and prepe- pretend that everything we've done till now is a failure because it hasn't been fair, mm-hmm. um, it, it will be the most pointless uh the most pointless exercise in waste in the history of humanity yeah yeah no i hear that i mean i i don't i was listening and i was thinking i don't think you even need to go all the way out to space to get that perspective i mean just look at the last hundred years right look look back in 1920 compared to 2020 i mean in the grand scheme of things a hundred years is nothing in the grand scheme of things a hundred years is no time at all that's that's one Truly. that's one person but the progress that's been made since 1920 is incredible on on every level whatever ism or phobia someone is concerned about economically science curing diseases um of course you know there there were two massive wars in between that time but relative peace etc or even if you just look um you know go- globally Right. If if people go go were to go out of America and to travel to some other countries and just look at some of the issues and problems that are still going on in many many other places, the USA starts to you know, starts to look like paradise. Um, you know, people it just gives people that perspective of like, oh wow, okay, yeah, things are not perfect, and we should still strive to make things better. But the amount of progress that's been made, it's like I feel like people are very impatient. I feel like people think that, um, you know, I mean, just even in my own in my own lifetime, the amount of progress that has been made in many, many areas and even people's ideas shifting on certain ideas and certain topics and things like that. I'm like, wow, that's that's rapid. That's fast. That's phenomenal. But it's like people just want things to happen yesterday and they can't just take that moment to be like, whoa, OK, things things are things are a lot better um it's like people don't don't want to acknowledge people don't even want to acknowledge the progress they want to insist that it's just as bad or that it's even getting worse and yeah like you said i think it comes down to honesty and i think if people aren't honest about both sides of it then you know i think things still keep moving forward but i think that it just creates so much animosity and anger and hostility and i feel like that's that's what we're seeing right now i mean those riots going on in Portland, going on in some other places, it just seems like pent up energy and anger and hostility. And it's just, it, to me, it's very misdirected. I'm like, I think all that energy could be put in a, in much better places to be frank, rather than fighting the police or beating people up in the street or burning down buildings or, you know, calling people things that they're not. I just don't think it's, um, I don't think it's helpful and I don't think it's very, I don't think it's very kind either. <laughs> I just don't think it's very, it's not very nice. No, it's mean spirited. Yeah. But I, I want to focus on your point about impatience because okay. I think this actually is playing a huge role here. So people who have actually built something or accomplished something or been part of the, um, the growth of something know things about how the actual world functions mm-hmm. that I think are largely absent from these very powerful movements. In other words, 
let's say that we decided that there was some institution that was necessary to the world becoming better and that we needed to build a campus for it, you know, some buildings that were well-suited to the purpose. We needed to bring people together, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's some amount of money that would create that amount of progress in three years, let's say, mm -hmm. right? There's no amount of money that will create that amount of progress by tomorrow, Yeah, right? There's no amount of money you could bring to bear that would create a campus and bring people together and sit them in chairs facing each other tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So that means that there's some maximum rate and there's some interaction between the resources you're willing to bring to bear and how much progress you can make on the goal. Mm -hmm. So at some level, we should be asking ourselves the question, if you take the U.S., let's say, in 1950, and you say, well, what's the state of race relations in 1950? Mm -hmm. And then you say, where do we want to go? Well, to those who had insight in the 50s and 60s, the idea of a colorblind society was evidently the right one. Yes. And I agree, it is still the right one. Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't mean being deaf to the fact that people... Uh, have races, yeah. right? It means that those things should not bring you any advantage in a courtroom mm -hmm. or in the market mm -hmm. or any of those things. So from the 1950 starting date, what is the maximum rate of progress we can make towards a colorblind society? And then if you say, well, we made progress, how close did we get to that maximum rate? And the answer is we didn't hit the maximum rate, mm -hmm. but we did well, mm -hmm. right? We made rapid progress Huge. in a small number of generations. And so to take our failure to hit the maximum rate, or worse, our failure to achieve perfection, which is impossible, mm. right, as evidence that we were on the wrong track and that we made no progress at all is just preposterous. Yeah. So at some level, I want to see this movement replaced by one that is led by people who have enough experience in the world to know what is possible and what progress looks like and how you would measure it, mm -hmm. because that's the way we're going to move forward. We're not going to move forward as a result of a bunch of, you know, utopians who don't know how things get built, destroying things in the hopes that that's what progress looks like. Mm -hmm. That's uh, utterly naive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally. I mean, one of the things I find most disheartening and quite perplexing is not just is people actually wanting to go back on like undo a lot of the things that people fought really hard for. So again, looking at um, the US fairly specifically, if you go back some decades ago, you know, the huge fight to end segregation, right? And now you're seeing people openly advocating for or creating racially segregated spaces and events and things like that. And I, I'm just looking at it with my mind boggling, like, what, what are you guys doing? Like, what, 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 what is this? Like, I, you're, this is literally, it's being called progress, <laughs> but you're literally like going back to and reinforcing policies that existed in the, the 1930s or the 1940s or something like that. And people are saying that it's somehow good because it's coming under this banner of so-called anti-racism. Um, and it's, I just don't get, I don't know, I don't understand this. I mean, I, I remember when that whole situation, I mean, this is how I found out about you from the situation that happened at, at Evergreen. Um, I'm sure you're, you're probably tired of, of telling the story, but I remember 
hearing or reading about that a few a few years ago and i was just like wait what like <laughs> I, th I thought i'd missed part of the story i was like wait hang on like what do you what what, what do you mean like what, what what even is this um and it's like that way of thinking as you've said i mean maybe you were the sort of canary in the coal mine in a way but that sort of way of thinking it seems to be it seems to be being promoted and propagated a lot further than I ever thought it would it would kind of reach. Well, I knew it was going to do this. I'm surprised at how quickly uh, it has happened. Yeah, but yes, there it is. It's so close to what happened at Evergreen. I mean, mm. we're just reproducing the whole thing. We're accusing people of racism for whom that accusation carries no content whatsoever. Mm. We are declaring autonomous zones. We are restructuring uh, the law so that it, it uh, applies to some people on the basis of race and doesn't apply to others on the basis of yeah. their skin color. It's every ironic thing. And one of the things that is most troubling about this movement is it seems to lack some of the most basic tools for navigating complex material mm. it's it has no sense of humor it doesn't know what irony is so no. it is constantly generating ironies without any understanding that that's what it's done mm. it seems even incredibly unmusical unmusical right? what do you mean even, by that well you know if i listen to the the protesters mm -hmm. when they chant Black Lives Matter, for example, it's it's so nasal. I think it's even literally like in a minor key, right? <laughs> and it is it's repellent, mm. right? It has no energy to it. And in any case, I think a movement that actually contained the kind of diversity of thought and was imaginative to succeed would find ways to make a deeper message, to make that message resonant, mm. you know, to shoot for goals that were actually plausible and desirable. And that in some sense, I, I hate to say it, but this movement looks like um, it's basically more like a tantrum or an allergic reaction than it is a coherent attempt to accomplish anything. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that's happening and is that things that nobody disagrees with are being used as the slogan. So people are almost sort of making this invisible enemy. So by say, even saying Black Lives Matter, that is suggesting that there is a whole, huge cohort of people who fundamentally disagree with that statement, right? When you're going out and you're saying Black Lives Matter, you're carrying that sign, you're making a big deal about it, you're putting it in your black bio, you're saying, I support, I believe that Black Lives Matter. It's like, so does everybody. But you're creating this fake, this artificial enemy. And then when someone has any, so, I mean, it's, it's quite clever in a way, because then anyone who has any issue with the movement or the organization, et cetera, they can then claim that, oh, this person doesn't believe that Black Lives Matter, or if someone has a problem with anti-fascism, or if someone has a problem with anti-racism, it's like, oh, well, if you oppose anti-racism, then obviously you must be racist. And it's just, 
I think it's very, it's very, very insidious. I think it's clever in a way. Like I can appreciate the cleverness of it, but it's, it's, I think it's just ultimately destructive. Um, because you're also, you're also alienating potential allies, right? Like I, I think, say for example, if you're, if you are focused on the, um, police brutality issue in the U.S., or you are genuinely concerned about police using unnecessary force or perhaps killing people in some dubious situations where they probably shouldn't, everyone agrees with that. Like, nope, I'm yet to meet somebody who is pro-police brutality or pro-police killing an innocent person of, of any color. But once people start using this kind of rhetoric and framing the arguments in these ways, it prevents people from uniting. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and I've had this debate with a lot of people, some people vehemently disagree with me. But as far as I'm concerned, the people saying Black Lives Matter and the people saying All Lives Matter are saying the same thing. Right? Every oh, Everybody I, fundamentally agrees on those statements on a basic human level, unless you're a total psychopath. So I'm like, okay, so why don't you stop fighting each other? You both agree, all human lives are valuable and matter. Nobody's life should be taken by a policeman unfairly. Um, you're actually agreeing on the core points, but you're so stuck on the minutia and the sloganeering that you can't just unite and actually sort this thing out. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's very odd to me. Well, I think you're being too generous. Okay. <laughs> I agree with the exact irony that you're pointing to. So it's one thing to say black lives matter. And as I've pointed out routinely to people, black lives matter actually means something as a slogan. Mm -hmm. It means that black lives are undervalued, mm -hmm. right? It's like saying black lives matter too. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, everybody in their rational mind, every decent person agrees with this. Mm -hmm. At the point that you are berating people for saying all lives matter, mm -hmm. you have revealed that you're not really complaining about an inequality. Mm. What you are doing is leveling a threat. Yes. You have to say Black Lives yes. Matter. And it actually doesn't matter what the content is that you're being forced to say. The point is I have the power to make you say this, and I have the power to punish you if you choose to say this other thing, which, as you point out, means the identical thing. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Black Lives Matter, too, is the same thing as saying all lives matter. Yeah. They're, in fact, you could put an equal sign between them. Yeah. They're, that, they're that similar. Yeah. Um, so the point is it's the cryptic threat. That's what we're actually watching. It's the ability to walk into a cafe and make everybody in the cafe raise a fist for black power and say certain words mm -hmm. and to punish the person who resists, mm -hmm. right? Um, that is the point. And the reason that the movement has become so powerful is that the threat is absolutely credible mm -hmm. and most people respond to it and they cave. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> it, it, it's a shame because I, I feel like with, with so many of these things, I just feel like I feel like it's close. It's almost like, uh, like if you could just tweak this bit or if you could stop doing that part, like this would actually be a good thing. You know, I mean, as, as, look, as far as I'm concerned, if you have a movement that's called Black Lives Matter and you have swathes of black people who have a fundamental problem with it then you should probably do some self-analysis and say, okay, well, they're probably, let's, let's, let's give some charity. They're probably not disagreeing with the fundamental statement, but perhaps some of the goals or the methods or the ideology is, is the problem. But people don't want to do that. They just rather say, okay, if you are black or whatever color you are, and you are not 1000% on board with this 
movement and idea and everything, then you are just the worst of the worst. Um, and I feel like if the movement were called anything else, that wouldn't work. <laughs> you know, if the, right. if the movement had any other name, they wouldn't be able to do that. But because it's so cleverly, cleverly named, it's just this weapon and cudgel that they can use against people. Yeah, it wouldn't work nearly so well. Um, if the name was something like join us or else, <laughs> <laughs> or even if it were the, I don't know, the, um, I don't know, black Marxists against police brutality or something, like anything, <laughs> anything else, it just wouldn't work. It's just that it's right. such a, like I said, they've taken something that everyone does agree with. And so you've created an invisible opponent and then you can, um, you know, if I make a movement and I call it, um, you know, don't, don't kick kittens. And then I've got, I ram all this ideology into the don't kick kittens movement, which people yep. may not agree with. And then if someone has, has a problem with my organization or with my movement and I'm like, oh, what you, so you, you hate animals, you support, um, cruelty against animals. You, you want to kick kittens, you support people kicking kittens, et cetera. And you can just sort of use that, like you said, as a threat, um, as a threat to people. And of course, nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be come across as racist nobody wants to come across as sexist homophobic etc so they and and they know that that's why i just think it's so insidious right because people know what they're doing they know what they're doing when they're trying to force people to take a knee in the street or they're trying to force people to raise their fist and surrounding them if they don't do it i'm like this is not this is not coming from a good place this is not coming from a kind place this is this is a power play it's a power play and you're you're enjoying this. You're you're claiming to be the one who's being bullied, but actually you're acting. You're actually acting like the bully by trying to force people to do things that they don't want to do. Yes, and they are destroying the essential tools. Yeah. Right. So, whereas there was always a contingent on the right that disbelieved that racism was an important force, mm. right? They are now legitimizing those people by overplaying. The racism card they are robbing the concept of meaning i yes. mean let's face it i was driven out of a college on the basis of somehow being a vile racist <laughs> right this couldn't be farther from the truth yeah. so if you're if you're if i am the measure of your definition of that term mm -hmm. the term doesn't have any meaning yep right so um i think we need to focus on this which is not only are you making a power play that you're not entitled to make, mm -hmm. but you are robbing the people who are entitled to use these tools of the ability to use them going forward. The actual opponents of racism are no longer going to have a term because we're all going to have lost track of what it means. Yep. I've called it many times. Do you, I, I've, I've actually coined a term for this. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm the first person to coin this, but I call it, I call it label inflation. So mm. once you start, I haven't heard it. Yeah. Once you start calling everybody racist or everybody sexist or everybody fascist, then you have no word to use when you're dealing with a real one. And look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's come to the point now where if someone tells me that somebody is racist, I kind of roll my eyes and I'm like, that probably means that they're, they've got something. In, probably means they said something interesting, you know, like the right, term, like, yeah, the term has been thrown around so much at so many people who I know that. The, it don't fit the bill that I'm just like, you know, okay, I, I don't know what you mean. Um, it was actually funny. There was some article that came out in, um, 
in the in the UK a couple months ago, I think it was during the George Floyd protests, where where they did actually have some legitimate far right groups um, popping up in London, not in big numbers, but they did have, you know, some people who were actually doing Roman salutes and stuff like that. Right. And in the article, I think, what did they call them? I think they called them extreme far right. <laughs> because they've used the term far right to define everyone from Boris Johnson to Nigel Farage to just, you know, general conservatives that now when they want to refer to these people, they now need to say extreme far right because they can't just say extreme right or far right because people will just shrug their shoulders and be like, oh, well, you called everybody else that already. Yeah, no, there. you would need to say something like super duper no really this time we mean it far right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah the real ones yeah exactly now what are we going to do we're i think even those of us who are you know still in full possession of our faculties are having trouble figuring out how to speak because all of the important terms and concepts have been co-opted for this nonsense for real so brett what are you most optimistic about and what are you most pessimistic about well in some sense, the answer is the very same thing. Mm -hmm. So in evolutionary biology, we talk, we have a kind of shorthand that we use. We talk about adaptive peaks and adaptive valleys. And peaks are opportunities. And the height of the peak dictates how good the opportunity is. And the valley dictates how difficult it is to get there, the depth of it. And so if you imagine a landscape of mountains, mm -hmm. we are on some sort of a peak. But it's not the highest peak. Mm. The obstacle to getting to a higher peak is a valley that we have to go through. There's no avoiding it. And what I'm optimistic about is that the absolute insanity of this moment is evidence that we are passing through an adaptive valley. What I'm pessimistic about is there is no guarantee that there is a higher mountain on the other side of it, mm. right? We may descend and descend and descend, and we could drive ourselves literally to extinction. If the U.S. comes apart through uh, madness over largely imaginary racism, it will leave a power vacuum in the world that might well be filled, for example, by China. Mm -hmm. Things might get very much worse. One can imagine all sorts of very dangerous outgrowths from which we might not recover. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, perhaps we go through this very dark period and it is the gateway to the next phase, right? Mm -hmm the next version of civilization. Mm. And it indeed could be far superior to the one that we've got. Yeah. So I'm concerned that this chaos is emblematic of an adaptive valley and that there's no peak on the other side, but I'm hopeful that actually sooner or later here, we're going to hit bottom and start ascending and we'll find that as dangerous as this has been, there's somewhere very positive to go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope we are. <laughs> I hope that adaptive peak is uh, is coming soon. Um, Brett, thank, I don't want to. I want to be respectful of your time. I want to say huge thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to to speak to you again. And um, for listeners, where can they find your podcast and where can they follow you online and on social media? Yep. The Dark Horse podcast is on YouTube. If you want to watch Heather and me talk twice a week, you can also find it on your favorite podcast apps. Um, and there are also uh, discussions as uh, we had a great one on the Dark Horse podcast, mm -hmm. you and me. So they can find it in one of those places. They can find me on Twitter at Brett Weinstein. Brett has one T. Um, 
And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. As you said, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome, Brett. I will talk to you soon. All right. Be well. You too. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.